From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. My guest today is John McCorder. He is a professor of linguistics at Columbia University, the author of many books, uh, most of which are about linguistics, but some of which are about race and racism in the United States. We talked about uh, the, the language that we use around racial topics and also about his theory that the kind of new anti-racist politics has become a, a form of religion. I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think a bit of a controversial conversation uh, in, in some quarters, uh, but, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, uh, John McCorder, is a professor of linguistics at Columbia University. He's a columnist at The Atlantic and elsewhere, the author of many books. Um, here's our conversation. You, I, I guess, did a did a Lexicon Valley episode about this, but like a, a lot of what sort of people are doing in this reckoning is actually linguistic in, in its nature. And, you know, I think talking about both some of the the substance of that, and I, I read language hoax uh, a while ago, uh, but but I feel like some of that saber wharf stuff is sort of implicitly drives some of what people are thinking these days. I don't know if you agree with that, but I think I know what you're getting at. But keep keep going, because to tell you the truth, the language part of me and the race commentator part of me are l- literally two different brains, and, and so I, <laughs> I, I just think, I, I feel I feel like a lot of what happens these days is a a strong assumption that changing the way people talk about things is going mm-hmm. to beat the racism out of them or you know otherwise uh construct the world and that we should really judge people based on their sort of mastery of up-to-date verbal formulas rather than their their actions in, in the world. And then there comes to be a kind of a weird, like, class skewing to it. Because I'm very current, you know, on <laughs> whatever activists are saying lately, because, like, this is my job, right? So I can I can use BIPOC correctly. I can, uh, you know, do, do all the things. Uh, but, like, just because somebody is, like, 60 and didn't go to college that's going to really manifest in how they talk. Right. And like, is that actually the most important thing? Yeah, I think we have a problem in that there is a sense that you can change thought by changing the terms that people use for things. And it's not that changing the terms can't help get a conversation going. But the truth is that if you don't change the thoughts underneath with good old fashioned suasion, then the labels end up really just kind of floating along. And whatever label you come up with is going to become accreted with whatever negative associations you were worried about before. And then also what you're referring to is the fact that this idea of changing the names of things on a regular basis and also you know, being often rather condemnatory to people who aren't using the new labels, 
there is a class skew, there's an education skew. And so, for example, with Latinx, for example, I completely understand the impulse to get past old-fashioned ideas of gender and to uh, make a space for transgender identification, etc. But the simple truth with Latinx is that it's a term used by people basically in college towns and maybe a five-mile radius around them. In terms of actual Latino people, for example, I live in a neighborhood where Latinos are, I'm pretty sure, the majority. So I'm around Latinos every day. I have never once heard a single person in this neighborhood full of Colombians, Ecuadorians, Venezuelans, not to mention many, many, many Dominicans, never heard anybody use the term Latinx. And I'm listening and my Spanish is not bad. And it's because it's an elite thing. I hear that at Columbia. I don't hear it among ordinary people. And so that's another issue that among the people you think to yourself, well, thought patterns can change. And there are all sorts of conversations that the people themselves are having, but they're not going to use that term. I think of the the Latinx one all the time. I'm a very pretty much white person. Uh, but my, my grandfather grew up in a, a, a Spanish speaking household. His parents were from Cuba. Um, and he, you know, when his, his, uh, he's a novelist, his books were, were republished by Arte Publico as part of their pioneers of Hispanic American literature series. So he, he had the cred that, that I don't have. Um, and he always used the adjective Latin as the gender neutral English, you know, because his his feeling, I mean, this was, you know, decades ago, right? But his feeling was you have grammatical gender in Spanish, Latino, Latina, uh, you don't in English, and it would be wrong to use the male inflected word as a generic. He was, I think, relatively woke for a person of his generation. Uh, but so he said Latin because, and, and you know, I mean, I, I, I uh, learned this, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think in, in your books, but, you know, English used to have grammatical gender and then we stopped, but to, but Spanish hasn't stopped. And it, that just seems like a, like a question for the Spanish language community, not for us to say there's something wrong with grammatical gender as a concept. Right. Another thing with Latin is that that actually would be a handy solution here because unfortunately, you know, using X, there's a certain aesthetic clumsiness about it. Opinions will differ, but, you know, X is one of the quote unquote weird letters. It doesn't look quite right on the page. Many people would say that it's kind of hard to say, whereas Latin used to be that gender neutral term that one used. And I get the feeling that that's not allowed now because there's a sense that the people themselves are supposed to come up with the name and that it should reflect, in this case, the the language that is local to the people. And I imagine it's also thought that Latin is now a white term. And I must say that I associated, I remember hearing it as a kid, I associated with mostly working class white people that if they didn't say Spanish or Hispanic, they might say Latin. But the truth is, I think Latin would get over much more easily than Latinx. And I hear Latin used by some people in Jackson Heights now and then, especially people of a certain age, such as your father. It makes it makes perfect sense. But unfortunately, we also have this idea that the new name has to make a certain statement about identity against the oppressor. And I completely understand that. But in this case, I almost wish that Latin were the choice rather than Latin Latinx. Although, of course, I'm not Latinx. And so who am I to say? Right. No, no, I, I, exactly. But it's a it's a it's an interesting you know, example, I think, of how some of these ideas sort of come into into conflict. But you know something, Matt, I want to mention that this is something people should think about. 
African-American is something that came down in 89-90. No one would have expected it. It happened very quickly for a very long time. Black was the term. Then all of a sudden it was African-American. And the idea was that black has certain negative associations, partly because of the nature of the color and its symbolism, and also because of what many people unfortunately think about black people. So African-American was thought of as more positive. It was thought of as something generated from within black people themselves. And it was thought of as positive in delineating us as hybrids, where the reason that we're different is because we're partly African. Now, say what you want about that. It happened. It really caught on. Look at us now. 30 years later, African-American has accreted, for better or for worse, all the associations that Black used to have, such that now some people seem to be moving back towards Black, and some people, you know, used to explore for a while person of color, but now apparently that's a narrower definition. The thing is, changing the name can only do so much. It's the thought that really counts. African-American has very neatly shown that over its three decades of existence. Right. Well, although now now there's the shift to, to capital B black uh which i think right i mean which i think makes logical sense right because I you, like w- w- when you're yeah. talking about black people you're talking about an ethnic group right the same way yeah. you talk about jews yeah. or roma or hispanics yeah or, i've always thought Latinx. it should be capitalized yeah i've always suppressed an urge to capitalize it actually yeah it makes perfect sense to me so you know i mean i think that's a good example of you know some people get cranky about you know, social justice warriors or, or whatever you, you, you want to call them. And we'll mm-hmm. sort of say any kind of linguistic change is is like bad. Uh, but like language, right. language is change. And and what one way where, where I see this is uh, and, and I know you, you wrote a column about this. It, it seems to me that activists and intellectuals have sort of changed what the word racism refers to. But then sometimes when I say that, people will cast me as if I am being really negative and they'll get defensive about it, right? But it's not it's not unusual for for words to to change to some extent. No, they 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 change all the time and they end up meaning things that you would never have expected when the word emerged. I mean, even think of something like um, a transmission. Now, if I say transmission, the first thing that we think of is that thing in the car where if it breaks, it's expensive and you can't do it yourself. Think about what transmission actually originally meant. And so to transmit, and we know that there's that meaning. It's about, you know, putting something across. Now, I assume that that's what the transmission does in a car. And so now we say transmission. Nobody would ever have had any idea that to transmit as we say in that Latinate way, would come to refer to some part of an automobile which hadn't been invented yet. That's just the way language change goes. Racism, therefore, has evolved. And the truth is, I will say, the term has evolved. It's no longer about face-to-face prejudice only. It's also about disparities in society that can be seen as having been caused by that kind of face-to-face and mental animus. But now we call the result of racism, racism as well. Now, there are two hats I can wear. One of them is to say that words always change their meanings. But then on the other hand, I can definitely say, and I've tried to get this across, I think, two times in The Atlantic, that racism as we currently use it is very challenging because it's not intuitive to use it both to mean somebody saying you dirty N-word and also to mean that there is a school 
you know, in a neighborhood that is mostly black, where most of the kids who are in it are white and South Asian because the school has a particular kind of standardized test. And that also is racism. You have to wrap your head around what people mean by that. And it's a challenge. I mean, that is a really big splotch of meaning for one word to take over, such that in a way, I wish, if I could wave a magic wand, we would call that racism, and then we'd go back to saying prejudice in terms of how an individual might feel about people of a race, just because it would be easier to teach and it would be easier to have conversations. But there are words that are that way. For example, to date. Oh, they dated a couple of years ago. What does that mean? It's actually a term that we use to be kind of coy. Dated could mean that they went out and had an ice cream soda a couple of times. Dated could mean that they had an intimate and intense emotional and sexual relationship for two years. Dating can mean all of that and everything in between. And we put up with that. Racism has become that confusing. It's just one of those terms. So it's frustrating. But that is what happens to language normally. It's important, though, because some things from the relatively recent past, I I think I saw something you wrote uh, shortly after the the 2008 election. And it was, you know, it was something in the spirit that I think uh, a lot of people were saying at the time that like Obama's election proved that racism was not an insuperable barrier to black people's success. And, And, you know, clearly, I think that's racism meaning prejudice, right? Meaning that whatever people think and whatever people do and whatever American society looks like, if a black man can win a majority of the vote and become elected president of the United States, there is some large attenuation of the amount of racial racial prejudice in society relative to where you were when Lyndon Johnson was president. But I think a lot of young younger people in particular would go back and look at that column and they'd be like, is, is this McCorder guy lost his mind? Like, there's huge enduring racial disparities that Barack Obama being president for eight years, like, that doesn't change, right? Like, and obviously it hasn't. Yeah, that's one of those things. There are two pieces I've written that, you know, I will never live down. One of them is how hip hop holds blacks back, where, as I've said in the occasional venue, because it's been almost 20 years, I wrote like one tenth of that piece. That piece was murderously edited by Myron Magnet. I will say it out loud at this point at the Manhattan Institute. I didn't write that piece. And yet it went out and it went out exactly when blogs were becoming default and I'm I'm always like one year behind. So I figured, okay, I didn't really write this. It'll appear in this obscure conservative think tank organ and it will go into trash cans in a couple months. That was exactly when you were now writing for the internet and eternity as opposed to on paper. And I hadn't quite caught it. And so I shouldn't have let it get out there, but it'll be out there forever. The other one is the piece or two that I wrote where, of course, you know, the editors are going to put over it. Racism is over. And that's not what I said. But what I meant was that if a black man can be elected president, and you know, let's face it, it then happened again, that the idea that racism is a central obstacle to black achievement no longer works the way we're often told. And of course, I didn't mean that there aren't people who are what we used to call prejudiced. I didn't mean that there wasn't still a problem with the cops, you know, which I've written about more than I think a lot of people have reason to know. And I didn't mean that there's no such thing as what we call institutional racism. I just meant racism as an obstacle. But because racism can mean about 18 different things. People to this day, and they're not, it's not only the younger ones. There are people who love to 
drag that thing up. I think it was in Forbes, maybe, or the Griot, I don't remember. And they said, well, what do you think of this one, McWhorter? You know, as if I was really saying that there was no racism at all. But that's partly because the word is so challenging. Wait, that's a that's a, like a translation across a, a void. And, and I also saw I there, there was somebody I think it was Andrew Sullivan said something about critical race theory, which got me uh, Googling like what what that is. Um, I turned up on Google a, a Slate article that my friend uh, Will Remus had written back in 2012, which was not that long ago. And and he is he's writing about, you know, what what critical race theory is. And, and at one point he has to stop and explain. And he says, when so and so says that like white supremacists have are running American institutions. He doesn't mean that they're secretly going to Ku Klux Klan rallies at night. And it read is so dated because today everybody in progressive circles uses white supremacy in that newer, looser, laxer way where you're saying, no, it's not that they're burning crosses. It's that they are basically just supporting status quo policies about like in America there is a large racial disparities in economics and access to all kinds of resources so if you don't change anything i think those disparities just continue to exist but that that's a different phenomenon from like a clansman yeah it um the idea is that it functions to perpetuate yeah white supremacy is a term that i think has kind of crept up on a lot of us, and it definitely comes from the CRT literature. It used to be something that you read used that way there. But then if you were reading that, you were one of, you know, probably 50,000 people, you know, reading things like that. And now it's used basically as a stand-in for racism because for urgent matters, terms often have to be refreshed just because you wish to be vivid and part of speaking is wanting to hold people's attention. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but you know, you used to talk about prejudice and then around 1980, it became racism. Well, racism, you know, is getting a little frayed. There are a lot of people who question what racism is, question its prevalence, et cetera. And so the new way to say racism and make people stand up and listen is to use some other term. What would that be? Well, white supremacy was handy. And so it's easy to think, and there's a part of me that still thinks white supremacy, all of a sudden it's Plessy versus Ferguson. Why are they using that term? But really racism needed a new one. But what does strike me is that um, when I first started writing about race, and I had no idea I would still be doing it 20 years later, but when I started, critical race theory was something that, you know, you read about in certain books. You knew names like Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado, and you had to flag it. When I wrote Losing the Race, I remember, you know, dipping a little bit into that and saying, some of this comes from here. But I was assuming that most of my readers had never read anything with that kind of ideology. Now I wouldn't need to do that because their way of looking at things is much more mainstream. It's not as radical and peculiar as it seemed in the year 2000. So yeah, you never know how things are going to go. And people who say that academia has no influence on general thought have to think about the direct line from what started out as obscure articles by people like Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado, which are now fundamental to a book like White Fragility, which is selling now better than the Bible. So yeah, you never know how things are going to happen. Right. And, you know, I mean, the, those academic concepts through the, the media, um, have come to have a lot of influence. And, but I also think with people not always fully understanding them, because, you know, you were, you were saying about, about refreshing, right? Like one 
consequence of the uh, sort of shift in in racism, right, is an increasing like in, in white fragility and elsewhere. The the discourse is that well, everybody's racist or all all white people at least. Uh, you can use the word that way, and and they have reason for it, but it doesn't work as a term of disparagement then. Right. So if you want to try to say that, like, Donald Trump is more racist than a typical public figure, uh, which I think is clearly true. Right. I mean, he engages in a lot of racial demagoguery that we have not seen since George Wallace. Uh, people need a more em- emphatic term to make that point. Right. You don't want to just be like, well, Donald Trump is racist. And also, like, all your coworkers everywhere are because that's That doesn't characterize the situation. Although notice that now we're also resuscitating what had become a rather archaic term. And I never thought of this until now. I see what you're getting at. If you want to highlight how racist Donald Trump is, you can't use white supremacy now because ever since roughly 2014, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates had a, a lot to do with popularizing that usage. Now we're using white supremacy to mean, you know, water cooler, racist beliefs that the innocent white person didn't know they had. You need something else. Notice that how you do it with Trump now is to say that he's bigoted which to me, I think of Archie Bunker 50 years ago. But really, that makes it that makes the point. The idea being he's not just kind of passively biased in ways where he needs to flagellate himself by reading White Fragility. He actually has these blunt Wallace-esque feelings. And we need a name for it. It's not prejudiced. Racist doesn't work anymore. White supremacy has been taken up. So we call him a bigot. We needed something. I think that's where that comes from. And, and Archie Bunker's right on, right? I mean, Trump, he's like an old... White he's just guy like that. From, from Queens, right? He's so he like from Queens, yeah. <laughs> right? So he he says crass things. It seems plausible that he has like a real dislike of non-white people. Um, or you can't help supposing, right? right? Or at least of just like of any kind of change, right? Like, and and it, it, it yes, and so there's a there's a lack of a vocabulary of that kind of thing that used to be very. Uh, Noticeable. And and yeah, prejudice. I, I was watching some old uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, television ads for whatever reason. <laughs> Why? And, and he, <laughs> I was just looking up old campaign ads. So he's, he's talking about uh, Wallace in 68 in this ad, and he's calling Wallace prejudiced. And That's he's right. trying to appeal to, you know, I think traditional white Democratic voters and get them to still vote for him. And he's trying to say, well, we can't let our prejudices control us, right? He's he's calling on white Democrats to not not maybe deny some discomfort with social changes of the 1960s, but to but to rise above them somehow. And it's it's not that long ago, but it, it's just an extremely old fashioned way of talking. You know, what's interesting about our technological moment is that we are at the point where sound film is almost 100 years old. That wasn't true until recently, that you can see people walking and talking almost 100 years ago, literally, depending on, you know, what sort of really obscure things you want to dig up. And then you've got a good 125 years of sound recordings. It's at the point where the the way language changes in a more fine-grained sense than, you know, Old English becoming Middle English becoming Modern English, is going to be clear because we can actually listen closely to people over 125 years, especially with sound film and then radio and television over 100. And we have all these things at our fingertips because you can 
listen to Hubert Humphrey on your computer. You can listen to a radio show from 1932 at the press of a button. And it really does make it clear that language changes in major ways, even just over generations. And so I remember watching the Norman Lear sitcoms, my quarantine things. I've been watching my way through the Jeffersons and just listening to a lot of the language. And the show is, you know, basically 50 years ago at this point. And yet all sorts of things that they say would be almost senseless now to somebody under 25. And it's just because language keeps moving on. Reality, though, has a way of changing more slowly. And that's what a lot of our problem is. I should take a break here and then and then let's come back and let's let's talk politics for real. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So something that that you have said that's been influential on on my thinking is you have compared sort of contemporary anti-racist activism, the, the kind of stuff that has driven some of these these um, linguistic changes to a kind of a, a religious faith. And I wonder if you could, can you explain to people what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. And I don't mean a kind of religious faith. I mean that we have actually witnessed the birth of a religion. We're actually seeing it happen. You know, you think about, we're told that, you know, mountain ranges are ground down into sand, but you could never see it. We have actually seen a religion emerge. And what I mean is that there is a subset of anti-racist. This isn't everybody, but there's a subset of anti-racism that has gotten to the point that one tolerates a great deal of suspension of disbelief in the name of what is based on displaying not your inner faith, but your commitment to battling racism. And so it ends up explaining a great deal that I think the outsider would find peculiar. So white privilege, why do we need to stress that so very much, you might ask? Well, white privilege is the original sin within this religion or within you know, fundamentalist Christianity. It is fundamental that you display your faith in Jesus, showing your belief, even at the expense of what we might call logic to an extent. That's part of the definition of what a religion is. And with the anti-racist religion, and it really is a religion, the idea is that you are showing that you are not a racist, not showing your faith in Jesus. You are showing that you are not a racist and that you must do this, even at the expense of certain contradictory views, you know, such as, you know, Stuyvesant High School has a tough standardized test. Black kids tend to have trouble with it for various socioeconomic reasons. Is the solution to eliminate the test and to keep 
those black kids from learning how to take tests like it? Or is the solution to try to make it so that black kids are better at the test, which is something that was done easily just a few decades ago? If you're a good modern anti-racist, then you look at the racial imbalance in the school and you say that's racist and therefore we must eliminate the test. That makes no sense whatsoever, except that there is a religion that says that your primary goal is to show that you are not a racist and, you know, to hell with everything else. And then things like Judgment Day. People say, well, when America gets past racism, but what would that mean? Or there's a term. When America comes to terms with racism, what terms? Like that use of the idiom is quite opaque. What do you mean by coming to terms? Who would do the coming to terms? Who would judge that the terms had been come to? It makes no blessed sense at all. And yet you can say when America comes to terms, because it's the equivalent of Judgment Day, there are priests and there are sermons. And so, for example, the first time I wrote about this, I wrote that, and I don't mean this as a diss. Ta-Nehisi Coates's article on reparations was very well written, and you know I'm happy for him that he wrote it and it's so successful. But at the time, I remember thinking, weren't we talking about reparations just 10 minutes ago? Because really, the, the whole conversation about it had gone on from about 1998 to about 2001. And you know, general consensus had been that it wasn't going to work. And then here, just 10 minutes later, he writes this article, and everybody is talking about how incredible it is and what a revelation. And I thought, good article, but what? Why that? You know, it's it's an old topic. It's not like we haven't heard this before. What about Randall Robinson's book, The Debt? Why are people making such a big deal of this article specifically now? And then I thought, wait a minute. And I read the tweets and you know all the things people were saying on Facebook. And I thought, wait a minute, it's scripture. People like that article because it's a very well-written sermon reminding them of something they knew already. It's like they're walking down the steps from the church and they tell, you know, they tell the pastor, good speech today, good, good sermon today. And I thought, oh, and I don't mean that that was wrong, but it occurred to me, wow, there is now a religion that surrounds anti-racism that is almost uncannily like an Abrahamic religion. And why it worries me is that it often ends up hurting Black people as much as helping them. But yes, we have seen a religion. I have started to call these people, I'm saying this for the first time here, I'm writing a book about this, they are the elect. These people are the elect. It is a new religion. Most of them will resist the idea that they're part of a religion, but they are. And that's actually part of what shows you that they are part of a religion. It's really endlessly fascinating to me and also quite disturbing in many ways. So I, I think that there are definitely aspects of this where it is pernicious to see political movement take on these kind of aspects of, of religious faith. I, as you say, I think it prevents people from thinking critically about certain corners of, of the dilemma. At the same time, though, I do see some benefit in it. I mean, I think that when you look at the history of social reform in the United States, you often see it associated with Protestant religious revival moments. And, and I think in some ways, like that is what we are seeing as, as mainline Protestant churches. I mean, my family is uh, Jewish, nothing, nothing to do with me, but you see a, attendance in these mainline denominations has really fallen. And you see an increased uh, observance of this kind of new, new religious movement, which has its own uh, byways, its own scriptures, its own, its own catechisms. And something that's constructive about religious engagement in politics is it can help people get beyond aspects of their self-interest. And so 
you know, we have had forever in ordinary public schools in the United States and in housing in the United States, patterns of you know, de facto segregation. People don't have money, so they can't get into the neighborhoods where the good schools are. Because they don't have the chance to go to the good schools, it's it's hard for them to go make money. And it's not a strict color line the way it might have been in 1951, but it is exclusionary in, in a practical sense. And w- one of the things this new movement is getting people to do, because you have to... Um, Because I want what's good for my children is a perfectly acceptable thing to say in America and something lots of people do say. But because there's increasing pressure in some quarters to be seen as dispensing with your white privilege and acting on your anti-racist convictions, that's something that can actually inspire people to change the zoning rules, change the school allocation formulas, and do things that are practical. I, I, I don't say that's everything that's going on now, but in some ways it's it's hopeful. Like a, a purely analytic politics, I think, doesn't really generate change, even if, you know, there's some irrationalism mixed in to, as well. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And it's one of those things where you think about where do you draw the line? You think of a volume button and you wonder exactly where to set it. Because, yeah, just sitting around and reciting statistics isn't going to inspire anybody. And the sort of thing you were just talking about is absolutely vital in changing the world. But I worry that when it gets to the point that people are quite blithely refusing to listen to sense out of an idea that the main thing is to show that you are quote unquote not a racist. The problem is not that it's unpretty. Maybe it is kind of unpretty because I'm a hyperlogical person, but that's not the issue. The issue is that it hurts people. And so, for example, talk about schools. This is something that's happened both in New York and in Philadelphia. You have schools, public schools, where a lot of violence is perpetrated by mostly poor black boys. Now, they end up being disciplined more, they end up being suspended and expelled more with the predictable consequences. There's a whole literature that says that there's a bias against black boys and disciplining black boys, despite the fact that anybody who runs the school can tell you that it's, you know, there may be cases of bias, but it's the black boys who are committing most of the violence. Now, why are they doing that? Not because there's something wrong with black people. They're doing that because they come from poor and generally fatherless homes. And there's another literature that says that if you grow up poor and without a dad, you're more likely to act up, which I don't think would surprise most of us. So you could say, well, we need to work on the poverty. We need to, and this is going to sound very conservative, but you need to work on the family, as it's often put. But then there's another solution that says stop you know, suspending or expelling these boys, unless we're talking about somebody who comes in holding a gun. Now, as good as it makes people feel to knock off this supposed bias against these black boys in these schools, what happens again and again when you actually enact this hands-off policy is that the school gets more violent and less learning happens. And no one wants to talk about that outside of right-wing circles. That hurts the black people in the schools. And it's easy to say that, well, that's just one thing. But it's not just one thing. A lot of the current kind of anti-racism ends up actually hurting black people in the name of helping them. And that's 
what really worries me. You have somebody who you know, literally at this point, they're white people putting their hands up in the air, testifying. I don't think they know that they're doing something church-like, but apparently this is just what happens when a human being becomes religious. But they've got their hands up in the air, especially in the wake of the George Floyd protests. And I'm all for protests. I am not against Black Lives Matter. But this idea that I must show that I'm not a racist and that's what matters. Take that to a PTA meeting and you often end up keeping a lot of black kids from having a good school experience. That's the sort of thing that worries me. Well, that's where, you know, I did start to get get concerned to get get interested in, in some of these topics about speech and, and boundaries around discourse, because, you know, what's what's hopeful in this, I do think, is that a sort of religious type inspiration helps people move beyond narrow self-interest and, and care about other people. And, you know, obviously, you look at the the, you know, classical civil rights movement, and there's all kinds of literally religious leaders uh, involved in, in doing those things. But we also do need to ask questions about like public policy and what the impact is, right? And so you need to, you need to evaluate like school discipline policies and what are the consequences of changing them. And you need to be able to say, I don't know. Maybe that sounded like a good idea, but it but but it didn't work. I had my my last guest on this was Je- Jennifer Doliak, and she's a a scholar. She works on criminal justice issues, and you know we were talking about these George Floyd protests. They they raise a very important issue, it, as far as I can tell. Uh, I don't know if you disagree. There there really is a real evidence of bias in who police are pulling over and who they're stopping, and it's that's. Like, that's bad. People are angry about that for a reason. And there's also a bias in crimes uh, with Black victims. Murders with Black victims are much less likely to be solved, uh, which also seems bad. Uh, But we need—it's like what you need is ideas that make this better, right? Not just whichever idea happens to most fervently demonstrate your passion. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing that— worries me though and it worries me in in a way where i think i need to change my own lens on this and you know stop being so tidy is that for example yes the cops rough up black people more i think that the evidence is unassailable and that is unpardonable however the evidence is also pretty clear that black people don't get killed more than white people once you adjust for poverty. So not only is it that more white people get killed by the cops because they're more white people, but if you adjust for poverty, then what you see is that being poor makes you more likely to be killed. And in fact, the figure is that black people are 2.5 more times more likely to be poor and exactly 2.5 times more likely to be killed by the cops. And so for that reason, I genuinely do not believe that what happened between Derek Chauvin and George Floyd, I don't think that he was standing on George Floyd's neck because George Floyd was black. And I know that's a heretical thing to say these days, heresy, the new religion. Whenever anybody says problematic, what they're saying is blasphemous. And so I know that sounds blasphemous, but there is a white George Floyd in 2016 named Tony Timpa. For every one of these cases, the same thing generally happened to a white person the year before, and it's just not talked about. But this is the thing. Maybe that doesn't matter because we really do need to reform the cops. And I don't know how important it is to insist 
well, you know, the cops don't kill black people disproportionately, but they rough black people up disproportionately. Maybe the larger issue is that we really have a severe cop problem. And even just the roughing up means that for many people, uh, a, a major aspect of black identification is, of all things, your relationship to the cops. A lot of black people will say with a straight face that what we have in common is our relationship to the cops. And if that's true, that's one of the saddest things I've ever heard. That's not how to be a person, to all sense a relationship to somebody who doesn't like you as what makes you a particular kind of person. That's just that's just tragic. But all of that said, we really do have a cop problem. In general, I just feel that what we need to look at is what really ails Black people. And the truth is, and this is viewed as a cliche, but it's not. What is the problem for a Black person in a depressed community day to day? And I'm sorry, it's not the occasional rogue white cop. It's other Black people for reasons that are not Black people's fault. But in 100 years, when people look at the debate that we're having, and the idea is that we're supposed to be more upset about that rogue cop than about the guy down the street who might shoot you because the guy who's a rogue cop is the state and the person down the street is one of you. That is going to look so forced. I mean, I think we really need to pay more attention to what we're not supposed to call black on black crime and to frame it as it's not fair that the white man doesn't solve these murders is not the only way of looking at it. I wish that there were more stop the violence marches. I wish that the black community were taught to pay more attention to what is really something that ordinary black people feel as more of a problem than Derek Chauvin, Darren, 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 Darren Walker, not Darren Walker, um, the guy who killed Mike Brown. And so, yeah, we need to think about that because what is a black person's problem. A black person's problem is not usually Derek Chauvin. A black person's problem is usually violence within their own neighborhood, unfortunately committed by people who are just like them. Both of those things at least deserve equal attention. But I'm afraid that anti-racism means that you have to pay more attention to Derek Chauvin. Well, I mean, I, I think to, to, to give the due here, right, these are interconnected issues. Like one thing that we see is that after these big police, uh, whenever there's a there's a big police misconduct scandal, uh, and, and we see this in uh, Friar's research, we also see it in uh, Bokar Ba, who frames it a, a little bit differently. But, you know, when there's a big police misconduct scandal, crime goes up in, in the aftermath, and the victims, the victims of that are primarily African-American themselves. And it's a question of, you know, what exactly causes that subsequent spike in crime, but it's clearly related to the breakdown in, in goodwill, right, that exists there because it's like, you know, stopping crime is important um, and it doesn't happen when people don't feel like the police are, are serving them well. So it, it is all interconnected, but there's a question politically, right, of we were talking about linguistic change, right, is being very expansive and saying this is about racism, that's about racism, this is about racism. Does that help or does it hurt, right? Like one one thing you could say is, well, look, uh, criminalization of drug use 
right, rather than racism, is what's driving a lot of these low-level policing encounters. It it generates a lot of problems, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So really, we shouldn't be talking about racism. We should be talking about reforming drug rules in the United States in a way that'll be more favorable. Then another group of people will say, no, like, the war on drugs is an example of structural racism in the United States. We need to name it. We need to call it out. We, we need to fight it that way. And and that, I feel like, has become a big tension. Is it Does it do work to sort of be expansive in our concept of what racism is? Or is it better? I, I think your taste is to be deflationary about racism. Well, I wouldn't say deflationary. I also want to say you know, Darren Walker is the head of the Ford Foundation. I don't want Anybody to think that I think Darren <laughs> Walker killed my friend. Darren Wilson is the person I was referring to. But no, not deflationary. It's not that I, I'm saying, oh, stop obsessing about racism because it doesn't look good. And we've talked about that enough. But you've hit on something that's really crucial. Stopping the war on drugs, I believe, would make America turn a corner in one generation on race in general. It would give the cops less of a reason to have interactions with black people at all. It would create a revolution in the life prospects of black men who are underserved by schools. It would put wind under the wings of the idea of bolstering vocational education so that people who do not choose to go spend four years pretending to like Shakespeare in college will get degrees as electricians, et cetera, et cetera. And talking about pretending to like Shakespeare, I mean anybody in college. I'm not saying that just those those people would be pretending. And so I think that um, unfortunately we are in a moment where I say that about the drug war and there's a certain kind of person who says, yes, but the drug war was founded in racism. And you know what? That is partly true. That's certainly true. But we can sit around talking about what people were caught saying off mic in 1968, et cetera. But that doesn't help people who need help. If you want to help black people who need help now, sitting around and musing about the notion of racism and saying that, you know, get rid of racism and black people won't have any problems. It sounds good. You could put that to music, but it's not what's needed. What's needed is something that I think for many people, frankly, is less stimulating. You need to fight against the war on drugs. And that fight against the war on drugs is going to be only partly a matter of sounding off about anti-racism in the vein of Ibram Kendi. You have to fight the war on drugs. And it's about laws. It's about thinking about exactly how those laws would be fashioned and promulgated. You have to do the kind of work that Mark Kleiman, the unfortunately late Mark Kleiman, was doing. That would help black people. But unfortunately, we're being told that racism has to go away. And that's a model that starts with saying, stop not liking black people. Of course, you know, go back to the Norman Lear sitcoms. But societal racism, if we're going to call it that, is not something that you can just stop doing. You can't stop the society from being racist because the society isn't a person. You can't convince an institution. You have to do rather more mundane work. But there's a theatrical kick to saying racism, structural racism, white supremacy. But what about working really hard to eliminate the war on drugs, which a lot of thoroughly black and concerned people, and including, frankly, me, are trying to do? It just worries me that we focus too much on racism at the expense of helping black people. They're not always the exact same thing. I worry about it. Let's let, let's take another break. And I, I, I do want to return to that idea. 
Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I guess I had on the show a few months ago, Andre Perry, uh, one of the things he said when he was on is he said, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism won't fix, Mm -hmm. Uh, which nice line. You know, I I don't I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with anybody. But, you know, one thing that uh, did occur to me when when he was saying that and I I know this would uh, a political scientist would, would put me on the the modern racism scoreboard for this is that. When I look at, you know, ethnic communities that have succeeded in the past, it's not obvious to me that waiting around for prejudice against them to go away is like a construct. It's not good for people to be prejudiced. We should discourage that. But is that really what what happens? Like, is that how problems get solved? And, you know, to what you were saying about about the war on drugs, right? If it's true that the war on drugs was motivated by racism, but if it's also true that the war on drugs is bad and should be changed, right? If you accept the idea that there is a lot of covert racism in American society, what would the point be of playing that up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like how like how would how would that help? I completely right? like, it, it, agree. Yeah. I think that um one of the saddest things these days, and it's like fish don't know they're wet. It can be easy not to understand how peculiar this is, is that we're taught to think that for black people only, at this point in history, descendants of African slaves in this particular country, the United States, black people only are ones where calls of weakness are a kind of strength. So the idea is that we can't really succeed until there's this massive revolution in the way people think and this massive revolution in the very foundations of how society is run. And I'm not aware of that happening anywhere else in human history. It's really a very modern way of thinking. And it seems like we've been beating our heads against the wall for about 60 years, hoping that that new way of being an oppressed race would work. It doesn't look like it's going to bear fruit. And so the idea is to come up with solutions for succeeding in an imperfect world. And the imperfection will include not only Archie Bunker prejudice, but also the fact that the playing field will never be perfectly level. And our history will always suck. There's nothing to be done about that. And I'm not sure that we always realize that because, once again, we're trained that the moral thing to do, the intellectual thing to do, the spiritual thing to do is to talk endlessly about racism and discrimination. And frankly, 
it often leaves a lot of black people hurting unnecessarily. Well, and th- that was a subject where I, I, I did start to see, I, I was reading uh, Ibram Kendi's book. I was, I was reading how, how to be an anti-racist. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about what, what you had been saying about, about religion. And there is a, um, there's an eschatological quality to Good the, word. The, the vision, right? Where yeah. I love that word. Yeah. <laughs> well, because, you know, because it's like one way of thinking about politics, right? Leaving race aside is just like, it's just one goddamn thing after another. And you got to try to make things better when you can, right? In small kinds of ways. And I don't think that's his vision, at all, right? He his view is there has to be a revolution, right? The the root problem we're going to delve deeper and deeper in, and it will all be be fixed. So you know he talks about the achievement gap in schools, and he just connects it sort of intellectually to you know eugenicists and all kinds of terrible things, and he says you know, this is bad. We shouldn't be saying anybody's better than anybody else. And then at the end, he has this like trailing thought where he's like, oh, there was this study and it showed that the funding between primarily black and primarily white schools is very unequal. And we should probably do something about that. And then he kind of skitters off to the next paragraph. And that's just like alien to my way of thinking. I mean, I'm not an expert in school finance, but it seems like if there's, you know, significant disparities in school finance, we should we should we should fix that. Like we we should just ask, like what like like what can we actually do to improve the educational system rather than sort of like looking forward to the new millennium when there won't be racism? Or how are we going to how are we going to bring that about? Because things just just change over time. Kendi paints with a very broad brush. And that, for example, education chapter that you're talking about is um frustrating in many ways, because frankly, I'm going to stop euphemizing. It's just not very clearly thought out. I think that he has a major commitment to this thing called anti-racism, and frankly, it does evidence a certain religious quality. And it means that I'm not sure how anybody could take concrete and truly useful advice from his approach. And so, for example, yes, you can talk about eugenics. You can talk about theories that black people are less intelligent. Of course, you've got to name check the bell curve by Charles Murray, etc. Okay, fine. Now, how do you help black kids in school? Well, then he talks about their disparities in funding. And frankly, that's very 1998. It's been shown by a great many people on both sides of the spectrum that school funding is a vastly oversimplified way of looking at these things. There are cases that I could, you know, if we weren't dealing with time, I could tell you various cases where inner city schools have been awash in funds and equipment and intentions, and nothing happened because the problems are more deeply entrenched than that. I don't think Kendi has read about any of that. And then finally, he has a truly alarming passage where he talks about how we might need to re rethink what, how we value intelligence and how we assess somebody being a good scholar. And what he means is that for Black people, maybe we need to think of 
being emotionally intuitive or just being naturally curious. He actually says, you know, wanting to know that should be measured instead of how well you do on a standardized test. And, you know, that is so close to what an actual racist might think that, you know, black people are intuitive and they play basketball and they're spiritual and they make music and they're just so dynamic and alive compared to us. That's racist 1975. And yet there he is condoning it and frankly being treated as some sort of guru when the fact is I don't think he's really bringing a whole lot of knowledge to bear on the issue. And I don't think he's really putting his thinking cap on. Instead, what he's giving is a kind of sermon between two covers. And the reason that it bothers me is not that he's making a lot of money and that he's famous. Great. That's fine. I am happy sitting in my armchairs and watching old Looney Tunes and doing Lexicon Valley. It's that people are saying, well, I'm going to read Abraham Kendi and I'm going to learn what we can do for black people. And I'm not sure what anybody's going to learn. And yet, he's not well, going to I mean, that that's my problem with it. You know, I think if uh, when I read uh, uh, Stem from the Beginning, his his previous book, which is uh, an intellectual history, I, I learned a lot, um, but it's not a practical book, like of, as m- many books aren't, right? Um, how to be an anti-racist, it's, it's there in the title, right? Like you're going to read this and you're going to learn how to do something. But the nature of the project is that you don't actually learn how to do anything because improving school systems, I, I mean, reasonable people can disagree as to what you need to do to improve school systems. People have huge books about it. There's lots of dueling empirical literatures, but you would have to dive into it, right? It couldn't be a slim chapter in a brief book. And policing is like that. Housing is like that. You know, uh, even on, on a sloganeering level, so the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department doesn't have that many people working at it. So if you think if you think there's a lot of discrimination, I, I mean, the federal budget is huge. You could hire more people. You could conduct more uh, audit studies, which economists have done. I think you would find some more illegal discrimination. You could help that way. But it's very boring sounding compared to a big slogan, right? Defund the police has captured a lot of people's imagination, you know, because it's so it's so vague. Right. It's it's so it, it makes you, it makes you sound like you've embraced something that is equal to the scale of the historical moment in a way that fussing around about line items in the Justice Department budget doesn't. I worry so much that it's easy not to know what it really means to be out there trying to change something. We talk about Dr. King and we tend to forget what he actually did day to day. You know, he he did. I have a dream that one day. But that was you know, one thing. What he was doing most of the time was the mundane work of trying to change minds and trying to influence policy. And it was slow work and it was painful. And nowadays, yeah, you have to have a slogan. You have to, as you're saying, you have to inspire. And maybe there even has to be a degree of religiosity. But then you get down to, like me, I have been arguing for years, you know, get rid of the war on drugs, just get rid of it. But I also know that when you actually start dealing with the grimy details, if you talk to an expert about these things, you start having to ask yourself, well, which drugs? And, you know, who's going to get them? Who's going to prepare them? How? What do we do about addiction? This stuff is hard. And I worry that 
this sloganeering aspect of things where what you're really doing is pulling on people's heartstrings and you know g- getting people constructively angry but not telling them what they're supposed to do it ends up deflecting energy into people doing high fives rather than really thinking about what you need to do on the ground. So Kendi, not to dogpile on him, but he's got this idea that there should be, I forget what he calls it, a, an institute or a department of anti-racism that basically polices the whole United States for racism and gets rid of it. And frankly, it's this wonderful vision. I can imagine Spike Lee doing a movie where he shows this department of anti-racism in action. Delroy Lindo would play the head of it. And they're going around doing all this. And it's got this wonderful music. I can imagine it. That would be a great movie. But what the fuck is he talking about? Like in terms of actual, something that could actually happen in Washington, D.C. in the real world. It really has nothing to do with the world that we live in. We've got to do better than that. I'm sorry. We've got to get beyond that. And that's what worries me about this all being religious rather than secular, frankly. No, I mean, that That I think is, is a, a, a perfect example because you, you come to the end and it doesn't, among other things, if you know how the political system works, right, you are, um, you're assuming the end point, right? When there's, when there's yes. so much popular mobilization that you're able to get, you know, the House and the Senate and all the committees and the <laughs> filibuster system and the Supreme Court. And there's something in there about a constitutional amendment, which, and, and, you know, you think about, you know, there was a movement in, in the seventies in, in second wave feminism to pass a constitutional amendment. And it didn't work uh, because it's really hard to amend the Constitution. Um, and if you ever get to the point where so many minds have been changed that you are able to enact those kind of like, it, it's like you, you've already done it, right? Like, yes. like what, what's all the, the steps between A and Z? It, it doesn't, it doesn't. That would be of, a new world. Yeah. Right. Right there. So then it's like, well, okay, but you're the mayor of Atlanta and you need to do something like now about public policy and it doesn't it doesn't give you any any kind of guidance um and you know so this podcast is called is called the weeds so we we always stand up for the idea that uh the fussy details <laughs> count for something <laughs> and you know that that's what i do think goes goes missing when you want to uh, approach these things on, on that kind of that kind of level of of fervor yeah and we're encouraged to only think in that particular way. And I mean, I know a lot of people say, well, I'm reading Robin D'Angelo, I'm reading Kendi, and the idea is to translate that into action. But for example, neither one of those books really offer you any kind of real guide for that. D'Angelo doesn't even pretend. She's impatient with the very idea that you would think about what she calls solutions. And with Kendi, he nominally, he's doing it, but it seems to me that what his main aim is, is to look white America in the eye and say racism is everything and racism is everywhere and we need to get rid of it. And there's a certain general air in his presentation that we should have known this all along, that it's really just all so easy and that he's doing us a favor by being so patient and explaining it. But that's a very oversimplified view of social history, where it gets you, where it's going to go, and what you do to alter the currents of social history. It's not simple. And it's not all just a matter of, you know, the fact that there were, there used to be eugenicists and there probably are some and that there are implicit associations that people have about black people and that there have been funding disparities in schools. That's not 
It's not as simple as that, because the implication there is that it's as simple as that, and the only reason anybody would have a problem with it is because everybody is just such a goddamn bigot. No, no, no. Unfortunately, if it were that easy, we would have solved all of our problems about 30 years ago. So yeah, these sorts of things worry me, because I think we need to be taught how to get down on the ground. You know, the funny thing, Matt, is that one of the best books written about this, it's almost like somebody doesn't want real change to happen. One of the best books written about what black people really need to do now, unfortunately, was written by Bill Cosby. And so now nobody wants to pick it up. It was 15 years ago. It was called Come On People. And he wrote it with the psychologist Alvin Toussaint. And he just went chapter by chapter. And they talked about things real black people in the real world can do to make real change in communities. It was a wonderful, wonderful book. And now because of Bill Cosby and what he did. Understandably, now he's taboo. Nobody has any problem with cancel culture applying to him. I understand that. But it means that now that book immediately qualifies as a joke. It was really a much better book for Black America than anything that, one more time, and and Ibram Kendi has written. And yet, Kendi is the one who people are going to look to now. That's a problem. But that's one that can't be fixed. Nobody's going to want to read Come On People ever again. But I've read it, and I learned a lot from it. Well, may- maybe somebody who's not a criminal <laughs> revisits those themes. It was good well, then. So, so that was – so, you know, the the, the very first uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates article I, I ever read was about Bill Cosby. It was about that book and that, and that, that Cosby tour. You know, when he introduced – me at least to the idea of a a black conservative political tradition right which he he connected to to Marcus Garvey to to Malcolm X to to other sort of figures over the course of time who were less um I guess you would say what unites those kind of thinkers is less utopianism about the idea that you're going to hector white people into changing everything and, and what's striking about a lot of the contemporary, most people in America are white. So the way you get to the bestseller list is you you write books for white people. Um, but you're a when you're addressing a white audience, right? The implicit politics of that is that like, well, if you get these people to read enough really good books, they're gonna they're gonna stop whatever. Yet at the same time, the thesis of the books is that you know we are getting all these incredible privileges uh, from the structural racism in society. And you know, I, I remember uh, we had a conversation with uh, my my son is five when he was four. We're trying to explain something, and you know a, about racism and, and policing. And he, in that naive childish way, he pipes up. He's like, "Well, it's a good thing we've got light skin then." And I was like, Ugh, I don't. That's not. That's not well, really what you're supposed to take away from this uh, conversation. No. Um, <laughs> you know, and it isn't right. That's not what anyone is trying to is trying to say. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, and yet it it is the implication that that carries with some of these things, uh, and that's not a. You know, there, there's a, just a kind of irrealism about that notion that you are gonna get the powers that be to just be like, eh, you're right. We're, we're done here. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those things. I'm now 54 and, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to be old and I'm getting onto it. 
And so at 54, I'm realizing that now to some people, I'm beginning to sound like the cranky old man. And I can, I completely get how that must sound. But when you, when you round 50, it does get to the point that you have lived through enough time that you start to get a sense of what actually could work and what doesn't. And so being 50 and change, I'm now at the point where I can look back on a couple of generations, you know, not four or five generations, but I've been watching these things pretty closely since about 1990. And indeed, you realize, I imagine if you're 25 now, you're thinking, well, we're going to pull on white people's shirt tails and coattails, and we're going to make them face their inner racist, and then everything's going to change. That must look very plausible. But if you really think about the fact that a certain kind of dialogue has been going on forever, like in in terms of my time slice, it starts with the era of, you know, Archie Bunker and Maud and the Jeffersons. And my mother was a teacher of social work. She literally taught a course called Racism 101 at Temple University, which was basically designed to teach the white students of that time about racism in a way that they had never thought about before. That was a great course. She did a great job. And America was learning that lesson. And so everybody became much more aware than they ever had been before. But after you've been watching this sort of thing over decades, you think, how far is it going to go? You know, people, you know, white people now are aware of racism generally, you know, even regardless of class to a way, to an extent that would have seemed like science fiction as recently as 1970. But how much is it really going to do? And I think that these days it's at the point where somebody who's, you know, say 35 or 40 may think that what they've seen, for example, this spring is on its way to creating a revolution Whereas, frankly, no, not alone. You know, teaching white people that they're evil is only going to do so much. Give Tanakasi Coates one thing, many people would give him many more, is that even when he was younger, he was quite pessimistic about that sort of approach. Many people thought too pessimistic. But in that, I, th- I think he was more mature. And I mean mature in a very clinical way than a lot of people who are thinking that making white people feel guilty is going to feed poor black people. In some way. After a while, you have to just allow that white people aren't going to be perfect and certainly don't let them give you your whole sense of identity because after a while, you turn around 85 and you die and you've let them win. I'm not sure that all people realize that everybody dies. I don't intend to, but everybody else is going to die and you don't want to let them win. I don't get it. I really don't get the way some people let it roll over them, but maybe we'll see some change in that. I don't know. Well, on that, uh, I guess, optimistic note for uh, universal life and uh, immortality. Um, <laughs> I think I think we're we're about running out of time, but but I I, I do like to always uh, let the guest uh, get the last word here. Um, is there is there anything you, you you wish we'd gotten to here? Obviously, these are a lot of big big topics, uh, but you know, something on the top of your mind? Question I missed. Very very simple. Get rid of the war on drugs. Make every educational school teach how to teach kids. To to read with phonics and not the whole word method and not a mixture between phonics and whole word phonics. Look it up if you don't know, audience members. Third, long-term acting contraceptives, which allow somebody to not have to worry about you know what for five years. They are implanted into a person. They've been tested. Women of both races and all demographics like these, they should be available to anyone so that people can delay having a family because too often, and this is something I'm getting from left of center think tanks, not right of center, your first child, too often it's an accident. It shouldn't be that way. That kind of accident should be prevented. You need those. Those three things would 
turn Black America, not to mention many parts of white America, upside down. Just those three things. Not teaching white people how bigoted they are. Just those three things. I fully believe that those three things would be a seismically effective program for creating change in poor and semi-poor Black communities. And I wish that we could devote ourselves to that instead of all of this agitprop and drama. That is a lot to think about. Um, okay, thank you so much, uh, John McCorder, um, columnist uh, at The Atlantic regularly, Lexicon Valley podcast at Slate, uh, author of, of many books, including, I, I guess, a new one uh, that people should check out. Thanks to you. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeff Geld. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.